Chapters 5 and 6 of The Skipper's Wooing by William Wymark Jacobs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alan Lord. Chapter 5. They got under way at four o'clock next morning and woke the cook up to assist at 3.30. At 3.45 they woke him again and at 3.50 dragged him from his bunk and tried to arouse him to a sense of his duties. The cook, with his eyes still closed, crawled back again the moment they left him, and though they had him out twice after that, he went back in the same somnambulistic state and resumed his slumbers. Brittlesea was thirty miles astern when he at length awoke and went on deck, and the schooner was scudding along under a stiff breeze. It was a breeze such as the mate loved, and his face was serene and peaceful until his gaze fell upon the shrinking figure of the cook as it glided softly into the galley. "'Cook!' he roared. "'Come here, you skulking rascal! Where have you been all this time?' "'I've been in trouble, sir,' said the cook, humbly. "'You'll hardly believe the trouble I've been in through trying to do the skipper a kindness.' "'Don't you come none of that with me!' roared the mate warningly. "'Where have you been?' Come, out with it. The cook, still somewhat weak from his adventures, leaned against the companion, and with much dramatic gesture began his story. As it proceeded, the mate's breath came thick and fast, his colour rose, and he became erratic in his steering. Flattered by these symptoms of concern, the cook continued. That'll do, said the mate at last. I ain't got to the worst of it yet, sir, said the cook. If you stand there lying to me for another moment, I'll break your neck, said the mate violently. You've had two days on the drink. That's what you've had. It's gospel truth, sir, said the cook solemnly. You wait till the skipper turns out, said the other, shaking his fist at him. If it wasn't for leaving the wheel, I'd set about you myself, my lad. To the cook's indignation, the skipper shared the opinions of the mate concerning his story, and in a most abrupt and unfeeling fashion stopped two days' pay. Down in the forecastle, he fared no better. The crew's honest tribute of amazement to his powers of untruthful narrative passing all bounds of decorum. Their incredulity was a source of great grief to him. He had pictured himself posing as a daredevil, and he went about his duties with a chastened mien. Mistaken by the men, experts in such matters, and for the reaction after a drinking bout, they passed Northfleet on their way up to Rotherhithe, where they went to discharge a small general cargo. The cook's behaviour every time a police boat passed them, coming in for much scornful censure. It was some hours before he would go ashore, and when at last he did venture, it was with the reckless air of a Robert McHare and a Dick Turpin rolled into one. It was a damp, cheerless morning when they got to Northfleet again. It had been raining heavily in the night, and black clouds still hung low over the river. They were not to load until the next day, and after dinner Henry and the mate exchanged a sympathetic smile as the skipper took up his cap and went ashore. He walked in to Gravesend, and taking no notice of the rain, which was falling steadily, 
strolled idly about, looking into the shop windows. He had a romantic idea that he might meet Annis Gething there. It was half-holiday at the school, and it was the most natural thing in the world that she should be sauntering about Gravesend in the pouring rain. At about four o'clock, being fairly wet through, he saw the fallacy of the idea strongly, and in a disconsolate fashion, after one glass at a convenient tavern, turned to go back to the ship. A little way along the road he stepped aside to allow a girl to pass, glancing, by mere force of habit, beneath her umbrella as he did so. Then he started back guiltily, as his eyes met those of Miss Gething. She half stopped. "'Good afternoon,' said the skipper, awkwardly. "'Good afternoon,' said she. "'Nasty weather,' said the skipper, standing respectfully three yards off. "'Wretched,' said Miss Gething. "'I don't mind it much myself,' said the skipper. "'You must be very wet,' said Miss Gething. "'You are going to see Mother, I suppose?' "'I did think of doing so,' said the skipper with joyous untruthfulness. "'I am going to do a little shopping,' said she. "'Good-bye.' She nodded brightly, and the skipper, raising his cap, turned on his heel and set off to pay the call. He turned his head several times as he went, but Miss Gething, who knew more of men than the skipper knew of women, did not turn hers. A quarter of an hour's brisk walk brought him to the house, and he shook the rain from his cap as he knocked gently at the door. It was opened by a man who, standing with his hand on the lock, regarded him inquiringly. "'Mrs. Gething in?' asked the skipper. "'No, she's not just at present.' said the other. "'I'll come in and wait for her, if you don't mind,' said the skipper, speaking on the spur of the moment. The other hesitated, and then standing aside to allow him to pass, closed the door, and they entered the small parlour together. The skipper, with a courage which surprised himself, took a chair uninvited and began to wipe his trousers with his handkerchief. "'I'm afraid Mrs. Gething will be a long time,' said the other man at last. I'll give her a few minutes, said the skipper, who would have sat there a week with pleasure. He rubbed his moustache and beard with his handkerchief and put them into shape with his fingers. The other man regarded these operations with an unfavourable eye and watched him uneasily. No message you could leave for Mrs. Gething, he suggested, after a quarter of an hour. The skipper shook his head, and in his turn took stock of the other man. A good-looking fellow, with a waxed black moustache, a light silk tie and a massive scarf-pin. A frock coat hung about his knees, and shoes of the lightest brown called attention to his small feet. Another quarter of an hour passed. Wet day, said the skipper, by way of starting the conversation again. The other assented, and remarked that he thought it very probable that the wet would prevent Mrs. Gething from returning, whereupon conversation languished until the sound of horrid footsteps outside and the turning of a key in the latch made them both look up. "'Here she is,' said the skipper softly. The other man said nothing, feeling possibly that the entrance of Miss Gething was sufficient refutation of the statement." He was also in anything but a talkative mood. 
Mother not in, said Miss Gething in surprise as she entered the room. How good of you to wait, Captain. Oh, it's no trouble, said the skipper, who really thought that there was no credit due to him for his action. She shook hands with the other man and smiled at the skipper. I've seen you before, she said, and it is good of you to wait. I'm sure you're very wet. Uh, this is Mr. Glover, Captain Wilson. The two gentlemen glared their acknowledgments, and the skipper, with a sinking at his heart, began to feel in the way. Miss Gething, after going outside to remove her hat and jacket, came in smiling pleasantly, and conversation became general, the two men using her as a sort of human telephone through which to transmit scanty ideas. Half past five, said Miss Gething suddenly. Have you got to catch the 6.30 train, Mr. Glover? Must, said Mr. Glover dismally. Business, you know, he added resignedly. You'll take a cup of tea before you go, said Annis. She was standing before Mr. Glover as she spoke, and the skipper, who had been feeling more and more in the way, rose and murmured that he must go. His amazement, when Miss Gething twisted her pretty face into a warning scowl and shook her head at him, was so great that Mr. Glover turned suddenly to see the cause of it. "'You'll take a cup too, Captain,' said Miss Gething with a polite smile. "'Thank you,' said the skipper, resuming his seat. His ideas were in a whirl, and he sat silent as the girl deftly set the tea-table and took her seat before the tray. Quite a tea party, she said brightly. One piece of sugar, Mr. Glover? Two, said the gentleman in an injured voice. She looked inquiringly at the skipper with the sugar tongs poised. I'll leave it to you, said he confusedly. Mr. Glover smiled contemptuously and raised his eyebrows a little. Miss Gething dropped him one piece and handed him the cup. Sometimes I take one piece, sometimes two or three, said the skipper, trying to explain away his foolishness. I'm not particular. You must be of an easy-going nature, said Miss Gething, indulgently. Don't know his own mind, I should think, said Mr. Glover, rudely. I know it about other things, said the skipper. The tone in which this remark was made set Mr. Glover wondering darkly what the other things were. Neither man was disposed to be talkative, and tea would have proceeded in sombre silence but for the hostess. At ten minutes past six, Mr. Glover rose, and with great unwillingness said he must go. It isn't raining much now, said Miss Gething encouragingly. Mr. Glover went to the hall, and taking his hat and umbrella, shook hands with her. Then he came to the door again and looked at the skipper. Going my way? he inquired with great affability, considering. Uh, no, said the other. Mr. Glover put on his hat with a bang, and with a curt nod followed Miss Gething to the door and departed. I think he'll catch the train all right, said the skipper, as Miss Gething watched his feverish haste from the window. I hope so, said she. I'm sorry your mother wasn't in, said the skipper, breaking a long pause. Yes, it has been dull for you, I'm afraid, said the girl, 
The skipper sighed wearily and wondered whether Mr. Glover was such an adept at silly remarks as he appeared to be. Has he got far to go? he inquired, referring to Mr. Glover. London, said Annis briefly. She stood at the window for some time, gazing up the road with what appeared to be an expression of anxious solicitude. Well, I suppose I must be going, said the skipper, who thought he ought not to stay any longer. Annis stood aside as he rose and followed him slowly to the hall. I wish we had an umbrella to lend you, she said, looking round. Oh, that'll be all right, said the skipper. I'm nearly dry now. Dry? said Annis. She put a little hand on his coat sleeve. Oh, you're soaking, she said in dismay. The idea of me letting you sit about in that state. That sleeve is the worst, said the skipper, whom circumstances had made artful. It's all right here. He brushed his hand down his coat. That's a good thing, said Annis politely. Um, but not here, said the skipper, squeezing the lapel of his coat. Annis touched his coat lightly. You're very wet, she said severely. You ought not to sit about in such things. Wait a moment. I'll get you a greatcoat of my father's. She sped lightly up the stairs and, returning with a long, heavy coat, held it out to him. That'll keep you dry, she remarked, as the skipper, after a few slight remonstrances, began to put it on. She held the other sleeve up for him and watched, with the satisfaction of a philanthropist, as he buttoned it up. Then she opened the door. You'll give my respects to Mrs. Gething, said the skipper. Certainly. She'll be sorry she wasn't in. Are you staying here long? About three days. Annis pondered. She's going out tomorrow, she said tentatively. I shall be in town the day after on business, said the skipper. If it wouldn't be troubling you, I might look in. Goodbye. He shook hands confusedly, wondering whether he had gone too far, and, as the door closed behind him, put his hands in Captain Gething's pockets and went off in a brown study. Slowly and distinctly, as he went along, the various things grouped themselves together in his mind, and he began to think aloud. She knew her mother was out when she met me, he said slowly. She knew that other fellow was here. But one would have thought, Lover's tiff, he said suddenly and bitterly and doing the pleasant to me to make him smart a bit. He'll be round tomorrow when the mother's out. He went back dejectedly to his ship, and countermanding the tea with which the zealous Henry was about to indulge him, changed his clothes and sat down to smoke. You got a bit wet, said the mate. Where'd you get the coat? Friend, said the other. I had it lent to me. You know that Captain Gething I told you to look out for? I do, said the other eagerly. Let the crew know that the reward is raised to five pounds, said the skipper, drawing strongly at his pipe. If the reward is raised to five pounds, the cook will be hung for murder or something, said Henry. It's no use looking to the crew for help, sir, not be it. The skipper deigned no reply, and his message 
having been conveyed to the forecastle, a scene of intense animation prevailed there. I'm going to have a go now, said Dick emphatically. Five pounds is worth picking up. I only hope as you won't have the treat I had, said the cook feelingly. What we want, said Fat Sam, is one of them things people have in a city. Uh, one of the, uh, what you call ems Handsome cab, suggested the cook. Handsome cab be damned, said Sam scornfully. One of them things, uh, what has a lot of people in, I mean. Tram cars, said the cook, who was all at sea. But you couldn't take a tram car all over the country, Sam. If anybody was to ask me, I should say you was a silly fool, said Sam impatiently. I mean, one of them things people puts their money in. The wandering cook had got as far as automatic much when Henry jostled him into silence. What are you getting at? said Dick. Why don't you talk plain? Cause I can't remember the word, said Sam angrily. But a lot of people it gets together and goes shares. You mean a syndicate, said Dick. That's the word, said Sam with relief. Well, what's the good of that, said Dick. This way, said Sam, we make up a syndicate and divide the money when he's found. It'll be a cruel thing, Dick, if, just as you spotted your man, I was to come along and snap him up under your wary nose, for instance. You better try it, said Dick, grimly. It's a very good idea of yours, Sam, said the cook. I'll join it. You better come in, Dick, said Sam. Not me, said Dick. It's five pounds I'm after. We shall be working again, you, you know, me and the cook and the boy, said Sam anxiously. Oh, said Henry, don't think I'm taking a hand, cause I'm not. Very good, then, said Sam. The, the, what you call it, Dick? Syndicate, said Dick. The syndicate is me and the cook, then, said Sam. Give us your hand, cook. In this informal way, the Captain Gething Search Company was founded, and the syndicate, thinking that they had a good thing, began to hold aloof from their fellows and to confer darkly in remote corners. They expended a shilling on a popular detective story entitled On the Trail, and an element of adventure was imported into their lives which brightened them considerably. The following day the skipper spent hard at work with the cargo, bustling about with feverish energy as the afternoon wore on and left him to imagine his rival tete-a-tete with Annis. After tea a reaction set in, and bit by bit the mate, by means of timely sympathy, learnt all that there was to know. Henry, without a display of anything except perhaps silence, learnt it too. It's in your favour that it's your own craft, said the mate. You can go where you like. If you find the father, she might chuck the other fella. That isn't my object in finding him, said the skipper. I just want to find him to oblige her. He set off the following afternoon, followed by the stealthy glances of the crew, who had heard something from Henry, and first, getting his beard trimmed at a barber's, walked along to call on Mrs. Gething. 
as she was in, and pleased to see him, and hearing that his crew were also searching, supplied him with another photograph of the missing captain. Miss Gethingwell, inquired the skipper, as, after accepting an invitation to a cup of tea, he noticed that she only laid for two. Oh, yes, she's gone to London, said Mrs. Gething. She's got friends there, you know. Mr. Glover, said the skipper to himself with dismal intuition. I met a friend here the day before yesterday, he said aloud. Oh, yes, Mr. Glover, said the old lady. A man in a very good position. He's very nice, isn't he? Splendid, murmured the skipper vaguely. He would do anything for her, said the fond mother. I'm sure it's quite touching, the way he looks after her. Going to be married soon, queried the skipper. He knew it was a rude question for a comparative stranger to ask, but he couldn't help it. When my husband is found said the old lady, shaking her head sadly. She won't marry till then. The skipper sat back in his chair, and pushing his plate from him, pondered over this latest piece of information. It seemed at first an excellent reason for not finding Captain Gething, but the idea had hardly occurred to him before he dismissed it as unworthy, and manfully resolved to do his best. For an hour he sat, listening to the somewhat prosy talk of the old lady, and then, there being no sign of Annis's return, he silently departed and made his way back to the senior. End of chapter 5 Chapter 6 To the cook's relief, he found that the seamew's next voyage was to a little port on the west coast named Cocklemouth, calling at the garrison town of Bymouth on the way. He told Sam that it was a load off his mind, and showed clearly by his manner that he expected the syndicate at least to accept his story. They spent most of their time in the galley, where, secure from money-grubbing eavesdroppers, they matured their plans over the washing of potatoes and the scouring of saucepans. On the trail was remarkably clever, and they obtained many helpful suggestions from it, though the discovery that Henry had got hold of it and had marked all the most valuable passages in lead pencil, caused them much anxiety. The syndicate were the first to get ashore the evening they arrived at Bymouth. They had come to the conclusion, in their deliberations, that the only possible place in which a retired mariner would spend his evenings was a public house, and they resolved to do them thoroughly. The worst of it, said Sam, as they walked slowly together to the town. Is a drinking. Or I've had five or six pints. Everybody looks to me like Captain Geffing. We won't have no drinking, said the cook. We'll do what the fella did in that story. Have you got sixpence about you? What for? inquired Sam carefully. Working expenses, replied the cook, dwelling fondly on the phrase. That'll be threepence each, then, said Sam eyeing him suspiciously. Sixpence each, said the cook. Nah, do you know what we're going to do? Chuck money away, hazarded Sam, as he reluctantly drew a sixpence from his pocket and handed it to the cook. What's your sixpence? The cook showed it to him, and Sam, whose faith in human nature had been largely shaken 
by a perusal of the detective story referred to, bit it critically. We can't go into pubs without drinking in the ordinary way, said the cook. So we're going in to sell bootlaces, like the chap in the book did. Now, do you see? Why not try something cheaper first, growled Sam. Measuring footmarks or overhearing fellas talking. It's just like you, Cookie, doing expensive things. Under the cook's glance of silent scorn, he became first restive and then abusive, winding up finally by demanding his money back. Don't you be a fool, said the cook coarsely. You leave it to me. I get tied up in a chair with my own bootlaces, perhaps, said the irritated seaman. The cook, affecting not to hear him, looked out for a boot shop, and having found one, walked in, followed by the discontented Sam, and purchased a shilling's worth of laces. What am I to say? demanded Sam, surlily, as they stood outside, and the cook hung half a dozen laces over his arm. You needn't say anything, replied the cook. Just walk in and hold them up in the people's faces, and if anybody offers you a drink, you may have it. Thank you for nothing, said Sam, with prophetic insight. You take all the pubs this side of the high street, and I'll take the other, said the cook. And if you look as cheerful as you look now, you ought to take a lot of money. He turned away, and with a farewell caution against drinking, set off. The stout seaman, with a strong distaste for his job, took the laces in his hand and bent his steps in the direction of a small but noisy tavern in the next street. The public bar was full, and Sam's heart failed him as he entered it, and, bearing the cook's instructions in mind, held up his wares to the customers. Most of them took no notice, and the only man who said anything to him was a red-nosed sergeant of marines, who, setting his glass with great deliberation on the counter, gazed fixedly at a dozen laces crawling over his red sleeve. His remarks, when he discovered their connection with Sam, were of a severe and sweeping character, and contained not the slightest reference to a drink. In the next bar, he met a philanthropist who bought up his whole stock in trade. The stout seaman was utterly unprepared for such kindness, and stood looking at him dumbly, his lips all a-tremble with naughty words. There, there, said his benefactor kindly. Never mind about thanking me. The Sam obeyed him easily, and departing in silence, went off raving to the nearest boot shop to buy more laces. Taught by experience, he put some of his new stock in his pocket, and with a couple of pears in his hand, entered the next tavern on his beat. The bar was pretty full, but he pushed his way in, and offering his wares in a perfunctory fashion, looked round carefully for any signs of Captain Gething. Outside, said a smart barmaid, with a toss of her head as she caught sight of him. I'm going, miss, said Sam, blushing with shame. Hitherto, most barmaids had treated him with kindness, and in taverns where his powers were known, usually addressed him as sir. Down on your luck, mate, said a voice as he turned to go. 
Starving, sir, said Sam, who was never one to trouble about appearances. Sit down, said his new friend, with a nod at the barmaid, who was still regarding the seaman in a hostile fashion. Sam sat down and mentally blessed the reservation regarding free drinks as his benefactor turned to the bar and gave his order. His eyes beamed softly with a mixture of gratitude and amusement as his new friend came back with a pint of ale and half a loaf of bread. Get through that old chap, said the man as he handed him the bread, and there's some more where that came from. He sat down opposite and taking a long pull at the pewter, watched with a kind smile to see the famished seaman eat. He noted as a strange fact that starving men nibble gently at the outside crust first, and then start on small, very small, mouthfuls of crumb. Instinct, rather than reason, probably warning them of the dangers of a surfeit. For a few minutes, Sam, with one eye on the pewter and the other on the door, struggled to perform his part. Then he rose, and murmuring broken thanks, said he would take some home to his wife and children. Never mind your wife and children, said his benefactor, putting down the empty pewter. You eat that up, and I'll give you a couple of loaves to take home to them. My heart's too full to eat, said Sam, getting a little nearer the door. He means his stomach, said a stern but youthful voice, which the unhappy seaman knew only too well. He turned smartly and saw the face of Henry peering over the petition, and beside it the grinning countenance of Dick. He was on our ship this afternoon, continued his youthful tormentor, as he scrambled still higher up the partition, and getting one arm over, pointed an accusing finger at Sam, who had been pushed back into his seat. We gave him a lovely dinner, and after he'd eaten it, he went off on the quiet in one of our chap's clothes. That's right, Mertz said the delighted Dick, nodding at the audience. One of our chaps named Sam, went on Henry. One of the best and kindest hearted chaps that ever breathed. Regular brick he is, assented Dick. Fine, big, handsome man he is, said Henry. And this chap's got his clothes on. The customers gazed sternly at Sam, as he sat open-mouthed, listening to these fulsome but untimely praises. In every gathering, there is sure to be one or two whose self-imposed mission it is to right wrongs. And one of this type present at once suggested returning the clothes to the rightful owner. His suggestion was adopted with enthusiasm, and a dozen men closed round the hapless Sam. Outside, gentlemen, please, said the barmaid hastily. They went out in a cluster the stout seaman in the centre fighting like a madman and nearly overturning three soldiers who were passing. Two of them were named Murphy and one O'Sullivan, and the riot that ensued took three policemen and a picket to subdue. Sam, glad of a chance to get away, only saw the beginning of it and, consumed by violent indignation, did not pause until he had placed half a dozen streets between himself and the scene of his discomfiture. He had no intention of breaking faith with the cook, but he had a pint, and thought that circumstances 
justified it. Then he walked slowly up and down the street a little while, debating whether he should continue the search or return to the schooner. For a time he strolled on aimlessly, and then, resolving not to be defeated by the impertinences of Dick and the boy, paused before a high-class tavern and went in. Two or three well-dressed men, whose behaviour contrasted favourably with that of the vulgar crew he had just left, shook their heads, but not unkindly, and he was about to leave when a big, black-bearded man entered. "'That's a poor game,' said the big man, glancing at the laces. "'Yes, sir,' said Sam, humbly. "'You look as if you thrive on it,' said the man, somewhat sternly. "'It's only looks, sir,' said Sam, shaking his head as he walked to the door. "'Drink, I suppose,' said the other. "'Nah, sir,' said Sam. "'When did you taste food last?' continued the other. "'Yesterday morning,' said Sam, clearing a soft piece of bread from his teeth with his tongue. "'Could you take something?' inquired the other. Sam smiled expectantly and took a seat. He heard his new friend order a pot and, wiping his mouth on the back of his hand, tried to think of something nice to say as he drank it. Then his blood froze in his veins and his jaw dropped as the other came from the counter and held out half a loaf. There, my man, he said kindly, put that inside you. Sam took it and tried to put it into his pocket and repeating his old tale about taking it home to the children, rose to depart. You eat that, and I'll give you a couple of loaves to take home to them, said the other. The bread fell from Sam's nerveless fingers and rolled onto the floor. A bystander picked it up, and wiping it on his coat, returned it to him. Go on, said the big man, taking a deep draught of his beer. Eat away. I must see my children eat first, said Sam in a broken voice. You eat that bread or I'll call a policeman and give you in charge, said the other, raising his voice. I believe you're an imposter. Where's your hawker's license? In a state bordering upon frenzy, Sam bit off a piece of the bread and tried to swallow it. He took up a water bottle and drank some of the contents and within five minutes had swallowed as many mouthfuls. Go on, said the donor sternly. I won't, said Sam fiercely. Damned if I will. The other rose and went to the door. Just step this way a minute, constable, he said quietly. He stood aside, and as Sam paused with the bread in his hand, the door opened, and Dick and Henry entered, and shaking their heads, gazed sorrowfully upon him. The big man sat down and laughed until he cried, as Sam, realising the plot of which he had been the victim, flung the bread at Henry and made for the door. He went down the road mad with indignation, and with a firm resolve to have no more to do with bootlaces, pitched them away. "'Hello, Sam!' cried a figure from the other side of the road. "'Any luck?' Sam shook his head speechlessly. "'You've been drinking,' said the cook as he came over. "'I ain't,' said Sam. Then a base idea occurred to him, 
and he took the other by the arm. There's a pub down here, Cook, he said in a trembling voice, and there's an old chap there I can't be certain of. Suppose you go and have a look at him. Which one? inquired his innocent friend. Full of a great joy, Sam led him to the place of his mortification, and waiting until he was fairly in, stood listening behind the door. Why don't they speak up? he said crossly, as a low, indistinct murmuring reached him. He strained his ears intently, but could not catch anything, and losing all patience, was just about to push the door open and peep in, when he heard a roar of laughter. Peal upon peal sounded until the bar shook with it, and an expression of peace and rest came over his face as he pictured the scene inside. Done, said the cook's voice feebly. There was another roar of laughter, to which Sam grinned a silent accompaniment. You'll kill me, said the cook again in a choking voice. Nah, worse for you than for me, my lad, said Sam with great content. There was another roar, in which Sam, to his amazement, fancied that the cook joined. He was still listening in a state of maddening perplexity when he heard the cook's voice again. Poor old Sam, it said distinctly. Poor old Sam. I'd have given anything to have seen him. The listener stiffened up suddenly and, holding his breath, went off on tiptoe down the street, the sounds of the foolish mirth in the bar ringing in his ears as he went. His brain was in a whirl, but two definite objects shaped themselves in his mind as he walked fiercely on, to smash first the syndicate and then the cook. With these ideas firmly fixed, he went aboard again, and going into the lonely forecastle, climbed into his bunk and forgot his sorrows in sleep. In a sleep so sound that the others, upon their return an hour later, failed to wake him, until Henry, as a last expedient, threw a slice of bread at him, after which everybody had to keep awake all night to mount guard over their lives. End of chapter 6